Cello. Odie here, reading aloud from Three Keys by Kelly Yang. Wow, we're coming to the end of our story. And uh, we left off with Lupe coming up with a really good idea for the motel to double their profit on adding beds, bunk beds to their rooms and being able to make more money. So here's the last sentence from last time. It says, the two of us ran all the way back to the motel. They're very excited to share their idea. Okay, chapter 61 is where we are at, and it is on page 264 if you are following along in a book. Here we go. When Hank heard Lupe's plan, he clapped his hands. Woo! It's brilliant, just brilliant, he said. We sat in the living room of the manager's quarters while my dad crunched the numbers on his calculator. But how are we going to afford all the bunk beds, he asked. Hank grinned and reached for the phone. This is exactly why I got the line of credit, precisely for moments like this. As Hank waited on the line for the banker, my mom rubbed her hands excitedly together. Just think, if we truly doubled our profits, maybe we'd finally have enough money to hire someone to help us clean. Wouldn't that be amazing? A whimsical smile played on my dad's lips as he reached a hand to his achy shoulder. The day before Thanksgiving, the delivery guys carried the beds inside the rooms as Billy Bob and Fred helped my parents change the price on the big sign overhead from $20 a night to $10 a night. At those rates, you can't afford not to stay here, Hank said with a hearty laugh, admiring the sign. Remember, this will only work if we pack them in, Lupe reminded us. If we only put one or two people in a room, it won't work. We need volume, people. I smiled at her, spoken like a real businesswoman. Lured by our bright neon sign, the new customers came in droves. They were students, immigrants, young couples traveling on a budget and truck drivers who just needed a place to crash for a few hours before they hit the road again. We packed them four to a room, just as Lupe had envisioned. And by the end of the long weekend, Mr. Cooper and the other investors were happy that the profits were up again. And my dad even asked me to write a help wanted sign and put it on the window. I sat at the front desk, drawing with a ruler and a black permanent marker. When I was done, I went out the back to show my dad the sign. I found him in the laundry room, sitting next to the pyramid of crushed recycling cans he was sorting. Now that there were more customers, there were a lot more soda cans too. In his lap were the books that he had borrowed from the library. Hey dad, I said, smiling down at his books. Maybe now that he could get some help with the cleaning, he'd finally have time to go through the books. Are you studying to be a lab technician? My dad chuckled. (laughs) Nope. I'm just looking at these one last time before I return them, he said. Return them? Why? He gestured toward the piles and piles of dirty towels scattered around the laundry room, as if to say, that's why. 
but we're going to hire someone to help with all of that, I told him, and I held up my new help wanted sign. My dad smiled and said the sign looked great, and then he patted the small wooden stool next to him, and I took a seat. Even if we hire someone else, it's still not enough for your mom and me to both go after our dreams, he said with a sigh. Sometimes in families, you can only choose one. He reached down and touched the cover of his lab technician certificate book with his calloused hands one last time before reluctantly putting it away. And I'm choosing your mom's. He's going to let the mom follow her dreams. When my dad got back from the library, he had a new book, which he gently placed in my mom's lap. She was in the middle of making a bunch of new keys for all the additional customers. My mom was so shocked when she saw the book, she nearly made a key out of her sweater. High school math licensing exam, it said on the spine. I was thinking with the additional cleaning staff, we don't both have to clean all day, my dad said. I think you should go for it. You're an amazing teacher. My mom was speechless. She got up and hugged my dad as the keys in her lap fell on the floor. Thank you for seeing me, she said tearfully. Even if I don't pass the exam, and my dad put his hands on my mom's arms, Oh, you'll pass, he chuckled. (laughs) He turned to me and asked, Have you ever seen your mom not accomplish what she puts her mind to? And I thought of all the little things my mom did to get what she wanted. The fake shopping bags, the free sample perfumes, the beet juice she dabbed on her lips when she couldn't afford lipstick. My mom always found a way. You'll pass, Mom, I said. And she laughed and gave us both a big hug. Chapter 62 Are you ready? Lupe asked. It was the big day we had all been waiting for. The official grand opening of the Cala Vista Hostel Motel. Even though technically we had been open for a week already, today was the day of our official grand opening and we were inviting all our investors and old customers to come celebrate. I nodded and told Lupe I'd be right there as soon as I finished hanging up the last of the framed copies of my letter to the editor on the wall. There was one in each of the guest rooms, along with framed copies of Lupe's landscapes. But the room I was the proudest of hanging up my published writing was in the laundry room, where I knew my dad spent the most time. I wanted him to be able to look up at my writing every night as he folded the towels. He wasn't just picking my mom's dreams, he was picking mine too. Lupe and Jason were in the manager's quarters when I got back. Lupe was in a brand new yellow dress that Jose got her from Sears, and Jason was wearing a chef's apron and hat. He was the official caterer today, and he was making one of his new recipes that he had learned from his cooking class. Jason ran around my mom's kitchen, putting the finishing touches on the hors d'oeuvres for the big party, just like a real chef. Mango pot stickers, he announced proudly, presenting us with a plate of sweet and tangy dumplings fried to golden perfection. I took a dumpling and bit into it. 
Ooh, the gooey mango melted in my mouth. Jason, this is delicious, I said. He smiled. Outside, the guests were starting to arrive. Lupe and I each grabbed a plate of dumplings and headed out. Mom, come on, it's time, I called. She closed the math licensing exam book that she had been reading nonstop and went into the bathroom to change. She came out wearing a bright pink sundress that she had bought on sale at Ross. You look beautiful, my dad said. He marveled at her, standing proud and tall in his pair of black slacks, a crisp white shirt, and a gray sports jacket that he had borrowed from Hank. My mom slipped her arm in his. You were right about the clearance rack, my mom said to him with a smile. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Outside, there was a long line of cars waiting to pull into the Cala Vista. Most of the guests were gathered at the pool, mingling. I spotted Mr. Abayan, Auntie Ling, Mr. Bhagawati, and many of our other shareholders. Even Mrs. Welch was there. As my mom and dad went over to say hi to everyone, Lupe and I walked around with plates of dumplings. This is so nice, the investors said, nodding at the walls we had gotten freshly painted the week before. I felt a tap on my shoulder and turned around to see Mr. and Mrs. Yao. We were in the neighborhood, Mr. Yao said to me. He waved at Jose, standing over at the grill next to Hank. Jose gave him a little wave back. And then Mr. Yao turned to Lupe. I heard the news about your dad. I'm glad they let him stay. He was a good worker. Your mom too, Mrs. Yao added, and she put a hand on Lupe's arm. I, uh, I owe you an apology. Mrs. Yao and Lupe went to find a quiet place to talk, leaving Mr. Yao and I standing alone by the pool. I offered him one of Jason's dumplings. At first, Mr. Yao shook his head, but when I insisted he try it, and bet him five dollars he'd like it, he popped one in his mouth. Mmm, these are tasty, Mr. Yao agreed as he munched on the pot sticker. He reached for another one, but my plate was empty. I hollered at Jason to get his dad some more and Jason grinned so hard, his cheeks dimpled. As Mr. Yao waited for the dumplings, he gazed around at the pool and the rooms. I thought maybe he was a bit sad seeing his motel get turned into a hostel, but instead he said, Congratulations, Mia. Very well done. And he held out his hand. I can't describe the feelings that coursed through me as I shook Mr. Yao's hand. Why did it mean so much to me to finally hear him say that? After all this time, everything I had been through, Why did I still care what he thought? But I did. For some unexplainable reason that day, as I took Mr. Yao's hand and shook it, I felt myself come full circle as a manager. The skin around my eyes stretched as he offered me a rare smile. And just then, I heard Hank's voice calling across the pool. Mia, get over here. We're ready to cut the ribbon. And I turned to see Hank waving a big pair of golden scissors. Excuse me, I said to Mr. Yao, and then walked over to the front office and joined Hank, Lupe, Jose, my parents, and the Weeklies. 
As Lupe held out the red ribbon and Jason lifted up the bow, I cut it with the golden scissors and the entire motel erupted in cheers. To the new Cala Vista! Lupe, Jason, and I threw our arms around one another, our laughter jingling like three keys on a ring. And that is the end of this story. Now there is an author's note and I want to preface it by, these are the author's words, so not mine. This is what she wrote at the end of the story. And I know some of it does talk about politics with Donald Trump. And I want to make it clear that um, uh, this is the uh, these are the author's words when she um, writes about this. Okay, because I know it's a bit controversial with people's feelings being torn over our former president, Donald Trump. So here we go. This is the author's note. I was 10 years old. She, she actually lived through this. I was 10 years old when Proposition 187 passed. So she's your age. That year I watched in horror as the advertisements blasted on television and my Latino friends hung their heads in shame, huddled in the back of the classroom. The boy who died, Julio Cano, was just two years older than me and lived in the same town. I remember as a child watching my best friends, many of whom were Mexican and came from blended families, worry about whether they and their family members would be next. The anger and vitriol directed at illegal immigration was everywhere, this explosive rage that you could feel when you walked down the street. In school, people would point and whisper whenever a child who wasn't white walked past, speculating whether they were illegal their voices soft at first, and then louder and louder as it got closer to the election. And then on that election day in 1994, I remember watching as people cheered when it was announced that Proposition 187 had passed 60 60 to 40. The knowledge that that many Californians voted to not allow innocent children to go to school made me sick to my stomach. It was permanent, It was a permanent and irreversible slap across the face to me and every immigrant I knew. Later that year, we moved to Chula Vista, California, a border town just eight miles from Mexico. I made friends with many other fellow immigrant children and witnessed the traumatizing effects of Prop 187 on their families, the lingering fear and worry and anxiety of the provisions, even as Prop 187 was being legally challenged. I carried these memories with me for many, many years until one day I was sitting in a political science class in college. The professor was a man from TV that I recognized, Governor Pete Wilson's campaign spokesman, Dan Schnur. I was taking a class with one of the masterminds of Wilson's campaign. And that semester, the distress and frustration of my childhood all came flooding back as I listened to the strategy behind the pain I had witnessed. To get through the course, I reminded myself it was in the past. Prop 187 had been struck down by the courts. We had moved on. No candidate in the future would ever try to pull something like that again. I was wrong. In the summer of 2015, I watched as presidential candidate Donald Trump got on TV and blasted Mexicans as criminals. 
It was like deja vu, the same anger, hate, and vitriol, a punch from the past, a page directly out of Wilson's playbook. And like Wilson, Trump rode that anger all the way to victory. And in the years that followed, President Trump separated immigrant children from their parents at the border. The number of deportations of undocumented immigrants with no prior criminal records had tripled under President Trump. This time, I knew I had to write about it. So in my research for this story, I visited an immigration detention jail, spoke at length to immigration lawyers, interviewed families, and conducted conducted extensive research on the 1994 election, including the sharp increase in hate crimes in the months before and after Proposition 187 passed. Every single one of the hate crimes depicted in this novel actually happened during this period in California history. According to 1990 census data, one in four California residents were Latino. In the 11 months following the passage of Prop 187, there were thousands of instances of harassment and rights abuses committed against Latinos in Southern California. The Los Angeles County Commission on Human Relations recorded a 24% increase in hate crimes against Latinos in 1994 and 1995. Among them, many Latinos were turned away from banks, refused service, told to go back to where you come from, and forced to show their money before ordering in restaurants. Latinos in North Hollywood were asked by bus drivers to pay more than non-Latino riders, often double the regular fare, and asked to sit at the back of the bus. An apartment manager of a Van Nuys apartment building told a Latina woman, a citizen, that she and her children could not use the pool after 6 o'clock p.m. because those hours were for whites only. A Los Angeles woman was viciously bitten by a dog, and when she asked the owner to help with the medical bill, he responded, Illegals have no right to medical care. Pete Wilson said so. In October 1994, an Inglewood police officer arrived at the home of a legal permanent resident and drew his weapon because he said her stereo was on too loud. He threatened to deport her to Mexico if he ever had to come back. In schools, teachers assigned students to write essays about their parents' immigration status. After Prop 187 passed, in addition to Julio Cano dying, some hospitals and clinics reported a sharp decline in patients. In the weeks and months after Prop 187 passed, there were also reports that some of the estimated 300,000 to 400,000 undocumented children in California schools were not going to school. In addition to quantitative research, I also conducted qualitative research. I spent time in the Central Valley interviewing blended and undocumented families, migrant workers, and field workers to better understand what it is like to be undocumented. These families welcomed me into their lives and bravely shared their struggles. They took me to the fields where they picked fruit in the blistering heat. I tried to pick the fruit too, and within minutes my fingers bled from the thorns and my eyes stung from sweat and the pesticides in the air. This was their life, day in and day out. I met with their children. Over tamales and burritos, they shared their challenges with me. 
I listened to girls so smart and kind, any institution would be lucky to have them, yet they didn't qualify for financial aid. Their futures are a wide unknown, all because their parents chose to escape what were often critical conditions in their hometowns in the hopes of providing their children with more opportunities in life. I also spent time discussing Lupe's story with the policy experts and leading immigration attorneys at the Criminal Justice Reform Program at Advancing Justice, Asian Law Caucus in San Francisco. And they shared with me the reality that undocumented immigrants face today, which, as painful and hard as Prop 187 was, is even tougher now. Since President Trump took office, and this book was published uh, last summer, uh, immigration arrests have gone up by 40% at a rate of almost 400 people a day. All across the nation, families are being ripped apart. And, and President Trump recently announced he was rescinding the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, the DACA program, leaving the estimated 700,000 undocumented immigration children in limbo and possibly in danger of deportation. And while Lupe's dad, Jose, got a temporary stay, the immigration laws changed in 1996, such that it is significantly harder, almost impossible for an undocumented person to gain legal status other than through marriage. Today, if Lupe's dad went before an immigration judge with the same set of circumstances, most likely he would be denied. There are the notable cases where, due to grassroots and community organization, deportations get postponed or canceled, such as the case of Javier Flore Garcia. But they are the expectation, not the norm. By not giving hardworking immigrants with no criminal convictions a realistic path to citizenship, undocumented immigrants are left fending for themselves in the dark, vulnerable to exploitation, abuse, misinformation, and hopelessness. My biggest hope in writing this book is that it will give people a better understanding of the circumstances facing undocumented immigrants so that we can enact better policy. Not just hot-button propositions to win elections, but laws that embody the vision and core values of our country. And that, those are the author's words that she included at the end of this book. I hope you enjoyed Three Keys by Kelly Yang. And you know what? Now we have to look forward a whole new read aloud. So thanks for listening. I'm not sure what book we'll listen to next, but I can't wait to see. Bye.